984, page 984. I want to read verses 11 to 15 this morning, but we'll actually only be looking at verses 11 to 12. There's so much to look at within these verses, and the more I get into this book, the more we get into this book as a church family, the the more good stuff I'm finding, and the slower I feel like I need to go. Um, But there's so much to be found in these four chapters of Colossians. Uh, So basically, this week and next week is going to be split up into two parts. It's kind of one big sermon, uh, but it'll be split up into two parts. And the title of the sermon is What God Has Done For Us in Christ. And we'll be looking at part one this morning in verses 11 to 12. But look with me at Colossians 2, beginning in verse 11. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without Hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Will you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for the opportunity this morning to sing your praise. And as a couple of the songs even indicated that we sang this morning, we are thankful for the fact that you were laid in the tomb. And we're thankful that you rose from the grave. And we're thankful that you have died on the cross for our sins. And we're thankful for the confident expectation that we have that you are going to come back. And Lord, we would even love if today was that day. We could behold your face. And we could be rid of sin and live with you in eternity and perfection forever. We long for those days. And so even this morning we have a, a microcosm of that where we sing your praise for an hour or so. But we look forward to when it's just forever and ever and ever. As we look at your word this morning, we pray that you'll give us glimpse of your character and who you are and what you have for us. By your spirit, open it to our eyes. In Christ's name, amen. Last year, I believe it was during the summer, we did a short series, I think about nine weeks or so, on the church and various aspects of the church. And we called it Ecclesia, Ecclesia being the Greek word for the church. And that was the title of the series that we did back then. And one of the sermons that Uh, I had preached within that series was on the subject of baptism and the importance of baptism and all of that. But I also shared with you a little bit of my own testimony in regard to baptism. Uh, I like to say it, and it's kind of humorous to me anyway, but baptism has been the bane of my theological existence. Uh, It has been something that I've thought a lot about. I've, I've 
been in different camps over this subject. Uh, myself, as a child, I was, I was baptized around like seven years old, and then I was baptized again at ten year, years old. And probably no matter how many times I said a sinner's prayer, they probably would have just kept on baptizing me every, every time. Uh, and then as I grew a little older, after I graduated from college, I ended up leaving my Baptist roots, uh, believing in believer's baptism, that you are saved and then baptized by immersion in the water. I left my Baptist roots and I joined the membership of a Presbyterian church that, of course, if you know anything about Presbyterians, they approve and believe in of what's called infant baptism or pedal baptism, pedal meaning child or small child. And let me say this briefly before I continue, but the reason that Windsor Christian Fellowship is a Baptist church is because of what partly distinguishes us from Presbyterians and from Congregationalists and from Methodists and so forth. Within our practice as a church, one of the big things that separates us is that we are a Baptist church and that we baptize individuals who, upon profession of faith, follow the Lord in believer's baptism by immersion. So that is why we are Baptist. We are a baptizing of believers sort of church. But I believed at a certain point in my life, in my early 20s after college, that I ought to baptize infants, even though um, I didn't have any children at that time. And the logic of it all was very simple. And even the text that we're going to look at this morning is often used to actually prove the position that we should baptize babies. You see, of course, as I was reading it in verses 11 and 12, in verse 11, there's a brief discussion of circumcision. So you see the discussion of baptism also within those two verses in verse 12. And so what those who defend infant baptism will say they could come to these verses and say, okay, so there's circumcision there in verse 11, there's baptism there in verse 12, and so there's a, a real strong connection, there's a correlation between the two. And so what they would say is just like Jews circumcised their male children under the old covenant, so Christians should now baptize their babies under the new covenant. And so there's, there's a lot more to it, but for this morning we'll keep it at that. And so those of you who maybe even have friends who believe it's good and right and necessary to baptize infants, they do so in part on Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. And when I believed in infant baptism, I could have taken you to this passage and said, see, it's right there. there there's a correlation between circumcision and bap- baptism. So just like they used to baptize their babies in the old, or, or circumcise them in the Old Testament, we should baptize our babies under the new covenant, within the New Testament era. So... But the fact remains that in in light of some of those logical connections, there is not one, there's not one example of infant baptism in the 27 books that make up the New Testament. There's not one. Uh, Some people will point to the household baptisms in the book of Acts, but the burden of proof is still on them to prove that there's infants there within those households. And so it's almost surreal that I'm saying some of these things. And when we were in our rooted class yesterday, uh, we went through these two verses and we dissected them up a little bit. And I had told the class at that point uh, that I can hear myself from 2010, you know, kind of objecting at certain things that I say. And so there's this fight of Brandon going on in my mind as we think about paedo-baptism or credo-baptism by immersion and so forth. So it's a little bit surreal. But what I want to do this morning is, Lord willing, to show you what these verses mean. Not necessarily even in relation to the discussion of circumcision, of physical circumcision, or not even necessarily, although we'll touch on it, with with a physical water baptism. But to really look at what this passage has to say in regard to our own conversion. So let's jump right in. Verse 11. Look there with me again. 
It says this. In him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, so the first thing that I want you to see within this passage in verses 11 and 12 is what we're going to call the circumcision of Christ. And that's born right at the end of verse 11, the, the circumcision of Christ. It, it's no secret to you that as the, for those of you who have read through your Bibles, that you know that the Bible is filled with discussion concerning what is physical circumcision. It runs through Genesis all the way through. You go all the way back to even Genesis 17 and circumcision becomes a focal point in relation to Abraham, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 17 verses 1 to 14 talks in detail about this. And God tells Abraham that every single one of his males as a result of coming into covenant with God, all of the males within Abraham's household, Abraham's household, needed to be circumcised. So himself, his servants, his sons, all of them needed to have this done. And although this may not be a discussion that we often have, uh, and obviously now not being under those aspects of the law, you are free to choose in regard to your own children what you do in regard to circumcision. So we don't often, this isn't often a, a table conversation where we're talking about this thing, but within the Bible and the errors. Uh, or eras within the Bible, this becomes a, a standard practice for the Jews. And there's all kinds of interesting stories. You remember even the story of Dinah, where Dinah, with, I think it's Genesis 34, 35, 36, somewhere in there, where Dinah is defiled by a man. And so what ends up happening is this man wants to marry Dinah, and, and all of Dinah's brothers, Jacob's sons, they go to this man and his family and so forth. They're like, well, if you want to marry into our family, you all need to be circumcised. And so all of those men of that family get circumcised. And the text says, while they're still sore from their circumcision, the sons of Jacob go in and they kill all of those men uh, in revenge for what they had done to Dinah. Or you remember in Exodus chapter 4 with Moses, with this interesting scenario with Moses and his wife Zipporah. And Zipporah grabs a sharp stone and circumcises her son. And she calls Moses a bridegroom of blood to her. In 1 Samuel 17, you see the young shepherd boy. You remember the scenario where David goes and he stands before Goliath. And what, what does he call? What does he refer to Goliath as? He doesn't just call him a Canaanite. He doesn't just call him a Philistine. He says, this uncircumcised Philistine. It's almost like the, this insult. This, this man is a pagan. He has nothing to do with us. He is an uncircumcised Philistine. And this is all a bit strange because when we're angry at an enemy, we usually don't discuss whether they're circumcised or not. It's, it's not something that even comes into our mind. It's not even a thought. But this is something that they were thinking through. To David, this was a man in Goliath who was uncircumcised. He was a pagan. He was defying the armies of the living God. You continue on and you see that this is obviously one of the main practices for the Jews within the Old Testament. It's one of the things that the Apostle Paul even says about himself, doesn't he? When he's going down the list of, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin and so forth. And he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of my life. You might remember when we walked through the book of Galatians together a few years ago. And this, this whole discussion uh, about Paul's co-worker Titus who had not been circumcised. And this was a big discussion. And this was a man in Titus. And everybody knew that fact about him. And again, to us, it just does not correlate. We don't really think about those things. Or in Acts chapter 15, there's this whole council of apostles and pastors and the church coming together in Jerusalem. And what are they discussing? They're discussing this topic of circumcision. 
But an important question to ask, because it, it, it does fill the Bible. And even though it, again, is separated from us, it's an important thing for us to understand why and what God's intention was behind circumcision in the first place. Why did God want the Jews to be circumcised? Why did he want that for them? Circumcision was a symbol, it symbolized the separation of the filth from the body. And the whole point of it was not simply to separate the Jews in in a physical sense from the rest of the world, although that was a very key part of it. This was going to be a distinct nation. They were going to be holy unto the Lord. Part of that was going to be circumcised. But the hope was, God's intention was, that they would not only be circumcised according to the flesh, but that they would be circumcised in their heart. And that's what we see in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. The hope was that they would be circumcised with a kind of circumcision that wasn't done by hands. That wasn't done how it always had been under the old covenant administration. But done by the Spirit of God. A circumcision done by God himself. Putting away the filth from our evil hearts. And so we see this even within the Old Testament. Let me read for you a couple passages. Why don't you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. So hold your finger in Colossians chapter 2. But turn over to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The fifth book of the Bible in chapter 10. I'm so glad most of you still use real Bibles. Otherwise, most people are on their phones flipping from past past. You can't hear it. So I don't know when to start reading because your pages are not rustling anymore. But Deuteronomy 10, beginning in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. And above all peoples, as you are this day. Now here it is. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That is what he wanted. The circumcision of the heart. Or in Jeremiah 4.4. You don't need to turn there. Go ahead and flip back to Colossians 2. But Jeremiah 4.4 carries the same exact idea. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah. And inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this was the whole goal and intention behind circumcision anyway. It wasn't just a matter of the physical side of it being done, but a matter of it being done within your heart, that the filth of the heart would be cut away. And so what you have with circumcision is this incredibly bloody metaphor of sorts in physical circumcision that demonstrates the severity of the circumcision of the heart. Paul picks up on this elsewhere in the New Testament in places like Romans chapter 2 and verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, Paul says. And circumcision is a matter of the heart 
by the Spirit, not by the letter, not by the law, by the Spirit. His praise is not from man, but of God, from God. So circumcision is a matter of the heart. Or later in Colossians, we're going to see this. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And so circumcision under the new covenant is no longer a matter of the physical. It's a matter of the heart. It's spiritual. The circumcision of the hearts when the Holy Spirit comes in and he cuts away that flesh and he puts it off and away from us. And to so, so to sum up some of that in verse 11 of Colossians 2. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the flesh, the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ. This is what has happened for every single Christian. If you are a believer here this morning. You have had your heart circumcised. The Spirit of God has done that. Now jump into verse 12. He says this. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised with him. Through faith. In the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead. Okay so first you have that circumcision of Christ. In verse 11. And in the second, I want this, this verse 12, I want you to see the baptism of Christ. But like we mentioned earlier in the sermon, you, you can't separate verses 11 to 12. If you look at your Bible, between verses 11 and 12, it's one sentence. So it's all right there together. There's a very strong link between these two verses. Totally inseparable. So verse 12 begins, We have been buried with him in baptism. And let me insert here that this is partly why we baptize the way we do. We baptize by immersion because that is where we get the best picture in regard to being buried into Christ. So the word baptizo itself does mean to dip or to plunge or to immerse. But part of why I love baptism by immersion, and I think it's better than, than a sprinkling or some kind of pouring, is because it clearly demonstrates the picture that is Paul is getting across here and he wants us to grab onto. That we have been buried with Christ and we have been raised up from the dead. And so in your baptism, you have been plunged beneath the water, demonstrating that you have died with Christ, but then also you have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. So this is just a, a beautiful and glorious picture that we have in baptism. And so, although the imagery is strong in here, I don't think that's Paul's focus here when he says that we've been buried as Christ. I think his focus is in regard to conversion yet again. So, the correlation between the circumcision of our hearts in verse 11 with the fact that we have been buried and that we have been raised with him in water baptism. And so both things effectively mean the same thing. But be very clear on this point. Just like physical circumcision of the Old Testament didn't save a soul, so baptism saves no one. Baptism does not save you. The Bible is exceedingly clear that you cannot be saved by anything other than by grace through faith. That's a very important point that always has to be made. And so if you have not been saved, then now is the time to trust in the Lord, to to profess your faith in the Lord Jesus. Today's the day for salvation. This, This is not something that we should be delaying in, but to put our trust in Christ, to believe on Him, to repent of your sins before Almighty God and beg Him for forgiveness, trusting in the work of Christ on your behalf through death, burial, and resurrection, and then be biblically baptized by immersion. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In some ways, it really should be perfectly normal for somebody to ask you, uh, according to verse 11, if you've been circumcised in your heart. That that should be a perfectly normal question 
for somebody to ask you. Has the Spirit of God come in? Has He removed the flesh? Has He removed the filth away from you? Has He given you a new heart? Pulled away that heart of stone and given you a, a soft heart of flesh? I think what Paul does in a couple places as well, when we consider verse 12 in relation to baptism, is when he said, he, Paul could come up to you and he could say, Have you been baptized? And what he would mean by that is not, have you been saved because you've been baptized? But it's really a shorthand. And he does this also in Romans chapter 6, where uh, Romans chapter 6, he's talking about being baptized, again, the buried, walking in newness of life, raised to walk in newness of life, and all of that sort of thing. But what Paul is saying when he says, have you been baptized, is the whole package. Have you had a circumcision of heart? Have you been converted? Have you believed? And have you also been water baptized? He does, again, the same thing in Romans 6. In the New Testament, there's such a close correlation and a connection between your conversion when you were saved and when you were baptized. So again, it would be perfectly normal to say, have you been baptized? And by that, asking, have you been saved? Have you been converted? And so this correlation that Paul is drawing for us, he's showing us in verse 11 that we have been circumcised in the heart by the Spirit, by, by removing that filth of flesh from our heart. But then in verse 12, we have been buried with Christ and we have been raised with Christ to walk in that newness of life. So you have a couple metaphors that are at play here to demonstrate your conversion. Your heart has been circumcised and you have been baptized. And one of the things that we've been announcing uh, for the last month or so is that we would like to have a baptismal service. And there are are several uh, who have not been baptized to this point. And I want you to think uh, a little more on bap- the baptism side of this passage because I think it's important for all of you to know where we, even as a Baptist church, that we believe, we won't apologize for the kind of baptism that we do. We, we think that it, it fits in regard to Scripture. But I want you to notice two words that are connected with baptism that I think should hold anybody back from even believing that infant baptism is appropriate and biblical. And those two words are found in verse 12 where he says, through faith. So the whole verse again, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So those of you who have been water baptized, you have been raised with Christ through faith. And so I ask you, does the Bible show us that infants are given faith? I don't think so. I don't think you can find circumstances or instances where an infant is expressing or uh, demonstrating faith. So I love my daughter, Laurel. I mean, she's four months old. But to this point, I've seen nothing but a monster of iniquity. I have not seen the, the expression of faith to this point. So I love her, but she's a sinner, just like we all are sinners. But when we consider the infant, a four-month-old, in relation to something like Hebrews 11, chapter 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So Laurel and other infants have absolutely no concept of that sort of thing. Therefore, I think that this verse here would demonstrate that she should not be baptized until it is obvious, until we see that God has given her faith. And let me say that some of you children in here who have moms and dads who are Christians that have been baptized, this is something that's very important for you to be thinking through. This is something that you should be conscious of. 
It would be very easy to slide by week by week and to just kind of think things are good and that you believe or maybe you believed or maybe you haven't believed yet. This is something to to be considering, to be thinking of. This is so key for you. If you're a bit older and you believe in Christ, whether it's us or our children or whatever, and you have not been biblically baptized and added to the church, then I would encourage you to pursue following Christ in that manner. This is a huge piece in regard to our discipleship, to, to identify publicly with Jesus, with his church, through baptism. Let me give you a few other passages, passages like Matthew 28. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay, Jesus, well, how do you make disciples of all nations? First thing he says is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So one of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples is to go and make more disciples and do that by baptizing them in part. So become a disciple uh, through biblical baptism. And then you see even in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is uh, obeying this command of the Lord and he preaches this lights out sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the people are so stirred within the heart. After his sermon, they come up to him and, and they say, it says that they were cut to the heart. And they say to him, well, what should we do? So in response to all that you said to us, Peter, and all that you preached to us in regard to Christ, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And the text says in Acts chapter 2, those who received the word were baptized. And there were added to the church about 3,000 souls. About 3,000 people added to the church through being saved in baptism. Or think of somebody like the Ethiopian eunuch, that famous story in Acts chapter 8. And Philip gets swept over to the the eunuch. He gets in the chariot with the eunuch. And the eunuch is reading Isaiah. And and he's wondering what's going on within the passage. And Philip preaches Christ to him from that text. And so uh, the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved. And what happens? He says, well, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip's basically like, nothing. Let's hop in the water. Let's go down into it. And they baptize him there on the spot. Example after example of people professing their belief in Christ and Jesus and being biblically baptized by being immersed in the water. Demonstrating the fact that they had been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Indicating again that that filth had been taken away from their hearts. And what I love about this passage this morning is really just the simplicity in regard to the circumcision of the heart in verse 11, and then the the conversion, uh, that we have been buried with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ in verse 12. We have not been left in the grave, just as Jesus was not left in the grave, but we have been raised. Notice verse 12 again, how this happens. what, what, What is the impetus behind all of this? Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised Him. From the dead. So you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So it's the powerful working of God in you that has raised you from the dead. So just as Christ was raised from the dead through the power of God, even by himself as God, so you too have been raised from the dead, Christian, through the powerful working of God. And let me say this that it took nothing less than the powerful working of God to get you out of the grave. Right? It took nothing less than the powerful working of God to to pull you out of the tomb with Him. Let me ask you, where is the power of God found? Where do you find God's power? You want to experience God's power? You want to think about God's power? You want to dwell upon God's power? You want to see it? 
What is the power of God? Where is it found? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul says, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So you want to find and see and behold and dwell in the power of God and look upon His power and and, and experience His power? Then get a glimpse of the gospel. What is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. The gospel is the fact that Jesus came to earth. He lived this beautifully sinless life. He did absolutely everything that the Father expected Him to do. Everything the Father wanted Him to do. Jesus submitted Himself to the plan of His Father. That was His whole aim in coming to earth. And He executed it perfectly. Now contrast that to you. Contrast that to me. Jesus goes 33 and a half years without sinning. I can't go 15 seconds without sinning. Then Jesus goes to the cross. He dies there as a perfect lamb of God who has come to take away sin. And he does it flawlessly. He does it beautifully. He bears the wrath of God on our account. So Jesus is on the cross. Our guilt upon his shoulders, right? The wrath of God being poured out, funneled onto Jesus. And what does Jesus do in return? Those three and a half years of perfection, he transfers that over to you. This is what's called double imputation. And every time I tell you the gospel, I tell you this part of it. Because I think it's so key and I think it's something that has been so missed as we talk about the gospel. That we often like to talk about, well, Jesus took away our sin. He forgave our sin. Absolutely a wonderful thing. And we're going to see that in a couple verses down where it says he nailed it to the cross. That was all beautiful. That he forgave our, our sin and our debts, canceled it all away. Absolutely. But what if that were the case? So we were just forgiven... But we were given nothing else. We need something else. We need to be given His righteousness, which is exactly what He does give us. So we walk around with our sins forgiven, but also with robes of righteousness, not our own, that are on our spiritual backs. And that happens on the cross. And then Jesus is buried. Our text this morning makes clear, like Romans 6 makes clear, we were buried with Him in baptism and our conversion into death. And raised. But just like Jesus didn't stay in the grave. We don't stay there either. We rise with him. Romans 6 even goes on. He says just as Christ was raised from the dead. By the glory of the father. We too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him. In a resurrection like his. So you have been buried with him. You have already been raised with him. And you will one day on another day be raised again. Your physical body raised. And you will receive a glorified body. Even as Christ now has a glorified body in glory. And so this is why all of this talk about circumcision and baptism is so important. It's not to be needlessly technical. That these are are metaphors for your conversion. The very fact that you have been circumcised in your heart comes back to the fact that the gospel, all that Christ has done for you, he has rid you of your filthy, sinful flesh. And then what we see in his actions in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is something that we have experienced. We will one day again experience our physical bodies experiencing the resurrection. That we have died to self, we have been buried with him, and we have been raised to walk in newness of life. And So next week... We'll see more of what God has done for us in Christ. But according to these verses, what has he done? Verse 11, he has circumcised our hearts. In verse 2 or 12, he has converted us. He has baptized us into Christ. 
Lord, we thank you for doing this work on our behalf. We thank you for the circumcision of heart. We thank you that even as we look through the pages of the Old Testament, that it wasn't simply the, the physical side of it that you wanted, although you wanted it then, but you really wanted the circumcision of the heart. Lord, the, the removal of our flesh and our sin. And Lord, we're thankful for that. And we're thankful for baptism and the picture that we have in our water baptism, that we have been buried and that we have been raised to walk in newness of life. It doesn't save us, but demonstrates the fact that you have saved us. We're thankful. Thankful for your grace that has made all of this possible. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, The last song is on the back of your bulletin.